While waiting for the kids, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 2, you'll be there when we're ready to go. I want to read you a letter and ask you a question before I read you that letter. The question is, does this sound like the way you used to think or act? Does this sound like the way you used to think or act? This letter is written by a young man from a Christian school who is the president of his class. And the issue was, they have all these class funds to use, this money to use for different activities. And the activities that the class wanted to use it on were the normal things. You know, your school jackets, your rings, and which are fine things. And he was challenging that. He was challenging the use of money. Listen to his letter, and especially his closing. This was written to all his classmates. Dear classmates, Since the matters of class parties, jackets, and class gift have been brought before the cabinet, I, as the president of the class, have been considering the Christian attitude toward these areas. I think we would find the greatest joy for our own selves in giving ourselves our money and our time entirely to Christ and for others, and thus finding reality in his words, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. For Christians to spend their money on time, uh, their money and time on things that do not result in a definite witness to the unbeliever, or for the building up of his children, would be inconsistent with the facts that thousands of people die daily from starvation, and over half the world has not heard of man's only hope. How much more glory could we give to God by helping spread the gospel to the other part of the world who have never heard of Jesus Christ? or even to neighboring homes, instead of coming together in our little cliques by ourselves, limiting our social, our social well-roundedness to those of like mind, and wasting our time and money on our own pleasure. Since I am aware of the specific needs and opportunities where these finances can be used to the advantage of the glory of Jesus Christ, it's impossible for me to allow the class funds to be spent unnecessarily on ourselves. If I were one of those who are in great need, as I know there are many, I would want you to use your money to supply me with the gospel and my material needs. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And then he ends, Therefore, It is with love and prayer that you might see the Lord Jesus Christ giving his all that I hereby submit my resignation as president of the class. What a radical thought about the use of money for a young man in a Christian high school who's only a freshman. Only a freshman. But he gets it. And when I read this, this is one of my favorite books, I had to say this, you know, that maybe sounds like what I used to think like. Like when I was first saved. That's the kind of way I would think. Let me give you an example of that. 
two years after I was saved, I was at a, in a Bible church in Indiana. And we would go out two by two on Sunday nights witnessing to certain neighborhoods. And so one night I went out with another girl in the church, a teenage girl, and we were walking in this neighborhood, and she goes, there's a Catholic church. She goes, I used to be Catholic. She said, let's go in and talk to the priest. I said, yeah, let's go. And so we took our tracks in there and wandered through the hallways and found the priest in his study, knocked on the door, told him what we were doing, asked if we could sit down and share the gospel with him. I don't know if he was trying to humor us or what, but he said, sure. And so we told him the gospel. And we told it to him in a way that really pointed out the Catholic Church's errors. We emphasized the things we should have emphasized. And while we were there, we might as well address the issue of communion and the Eucharist and all that. So we just kind of hit it all. And then we left and we said, yeah, that was a good thing to do. But I have to admit, I'm not sure I'd go into a Catholic church to do that again. I don't go by Catholic churches now and say, ah, I think I'm going to go in and witness to the priest. I don't do that. What happened? Why was I so fired up about it then? And why now do I not even give it a thought? We all struggle with that. That first love that we had that disappears after a while. That first zeal that you can remember. Not there anymore. If it is, God bless you. And you just listen to this message to pass it on to somebody else. But if you're like me and you want that first love again, this message is for you. And Jesus addresses this problem of leaving our first love. And he does it in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation, you have, in chapter 2 and 3, you have seven short letters to real churches. These are real churches at this time. Churches like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Philadelphia. If you were to look on a map right now, you would see that those places were in Turkey. And you could just draw, oh, there's, there are these cities. They're all kind of right in the same area in Turkey. And so these people were going to receive these letters from Jesus Christ. If you notice in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus says, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists them all, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. These are the churches in the area. We're going to look at one of those churches, the church at Ephesus, because Jesus has a message for each of these churches, and I want us to hear the church, the message for the church at Ephesus. That's the message for us. There's some language in here that's different, because in Revelation it's often different language. You'll notice in verse 20 of chapter 1, the last phrase in there, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when we come to the word lampstand, you're going to hear... That's the church. That's the local church, the people in Ephesus who meet together and do these things. And as we go through this, we will see that Jesus is writing these letters, having these letters written based on how the congregation is doing. So you get warnings and you get encouragements in there because there's usually a mix with how the church is doing. Except there are two churches who receive no warnings at all 
only praise. There's one church who receives no praise at all, only warning, only rebuke. And in the church at Ephesus receives a lot of praise. And we're going to look at those things because it's important for us to understand those things. But they receive one warning. And that one warning is the most serious problem of all these seven churches. That one warning is the most serious warning ever given to the church. In fact, Jesus says, if you don't remedy this problem, your church will cease to exist. I will come and dismantle it. That's how serious it was. But in order to understand how serious that problem is, I want you to see how well they're doing. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, let's read them first. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, or churches, says this, I know your deeds, and your toil, and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and that you put to to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand, your church, out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. First notice how well this church is doing. It's very important because the finality of his warning is going to stand out even more. First of all, he says, I know your deeds. Now, usually when we hear that Jesus knows our deeds, we get a little fearful. Because that's usually brought to us in a way of, Jesus knows what you're doing, so you better repent. Jesus knows what you're doing, so you better clean up your life. But Jesus isn't saying it in that way. Jesus is saying, I know your deeds, and I know how well you're doing. Proverbs 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So he sees the good, doesn't he? And he notes the good. He remembers the good. Steve just preached through Matthew 25. You had the sheep and the goats at the final judgment. What does he tell the sheep? Only the good things that they've done. He doesn't bring up the bad. What does he tell the goats? Only the bad things that they have done. So Jesus is very comfortable complimenting his people and praising them for what they have done right. And he went through that list in Matthew 25. You know, I saw that you visited people when they're sick. I see those things. Not all you don't see when somebody visits the sick, but Jesus sees that happening. I see when you give clothing to someone. I see that when you help someone who's hungry. I see that when you visited somebody in prison. I see these things, and he takes note of them, and he records them, and he brings them back up at judgment time, the good things. In Romans 2, it talks. It says, he will judge everyone according to his works. And then we immediately look at that and we say, oh, 
so he's going to weigh my good works against my bad works. And I'm sure hoping my good works come out a lot heavier than my bad works. That's not what it says. He says, I'm going to judge everyone according to his works. And then it says, to those who by perseverance seek for glory and immortality, I give them eternal life. Only mentions the good. But for those who are selfishly ambitious and disobey the truth, they get wrath and indignation. So when you come to judgment time, there's going to be a lot of good said about you. In fact, I will throw out this radical statement, and you can address it with me later. I believe the scriptures teach that when you come to judgment time, you will only hear of the good that you do. Your sins will not be brought up. They were done away with at Calvary. Not to be brought up again. Now, some of you are raising your eyebrows, and so you can talk to me later if you want more proof of that, but it's all over the scriptures. And Jesus is telling us right here, I know the good things you're doing, church at Ephesus, and he knows the good things that you're doing too. He takes note of them. And so he starts going through them. First of all, I know your toil. Kids, that starts your list right there with the T. I know your toil and your perseverance. There's your T and your P on your notes. He says, Jesus, I know you've been doing warfare, church at Ephesus. I know you've been doing spiritual warfare. Remember when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, this church, in chapter 6? What do you say? Put on the armor of God. Get ready to stand against the schemes of the devil because it's going to be a battle. And you Ephesians, you've been doing battle. You've been toiling and you've been persevering. It's part of faith. You're good soldiers. Remember Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're all soldiers. Or he says, do the work of the evangelist, Timothy. Endure hardship with me. So we knew it was going to be hard. The Ephesians knew it was going to be hard. In fact, during this time, when this is written, the Roman Empire is persecuting the Christians. So it's really hard for the church at Ephesus to be Christians. So they're involved in the spiritual warfare, and Jesus says, I see that. I remember that. I've noted that. I thank you for that. I praise you. You've toiled and you've persevered. The next thing he goes on to, he says, I know that you cannot endure evil men. Because in verse 6, he tells us, Hey, church at Ephesus, you hate the things that I hate. There's this cult, there's this group up there called the Nicolaitans. I hate what they do, and you hate what they do. That's a good thing, to hate what God hates. You're calling sin, sin. You're repulsed by sin. You don't like what evil men are doing. You're saying with the psalmist, I esteem right all your precepts. I hate every false way. Way to go, Ephesus. That's the way to do it. Hate all the false ways. In fact, he told him in Ephesians, he says, Do not participate with evil men and the deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. He told him that in Ephesians. And obviously that's what they were doing. They were exposing evil men. They had spiritual guts to stand up to evil. Good job, Ephesus. Good job. Keep doing that. But next it says, You also put to test those who call themselves apostles. And they're really not. You found them out to be false. You see, Ephesus, you're not just exposing the evil people who are really obvious. 
You're challenging people who claim to be God's servants. In fact, you're challenging the highest office in the church, the apostle. You're taking people who come in and say, yes, I'm an apostle of the Lord, I've been commissioned by the Lord, and you're not being intimidated by that. You're not bowing down to that. You're saying, oh yeah, let's find out. What do you believe? Let's see your life. Let's see if you're really true or false. And these Ephesians know enough doctrine and they know enough truth that they can investigate people who claim to be apostles and expose them and say, you're false, get out. They're not intimidated by that. They've got wisdom. Remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, Satan even disguises himself as an angel of light and Satan's servants disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. So they are in the churches. They are in the churches. False leaders go on undetected for a long time. Not long ago I read about the guy who was the right-hand man to Jerry Falwell. And whatever you think of his ministry, he's done some good things. He was the right-hand man of Jerry Falwell. And he departed from that and came out and said that he was a homosexual and now he is one of the leaders of the gay-lesbian movement. One of the leaders. How does that happen? That this guy works hand-in-hand in the public eye, big position, high office, and all the time he's been a false servant. He's been a minister of unrighteousness. How did he get by for so long? How about in the Catholic churches, since we're on the Catholic theme? How many people in the Catholic churches trusted their priests only to find out that for decades that priest, who they said was a holy man, and who they entrusted the raising of their kids and the teachings to, found out they were abusers of kids? How did they get by being false ministers? How did they get by being servants of unrighteousness for so long? It happens. Demas, a worker with Paul, says, Paul says, Demas left me. He deserted me. He loves this present world. How can you work side by side with the Apostle Paul? He probably thinking, here's, here's a brother, here's a believer, here's a minister of righteousness, and he turns out to be a minister of unrighteousness. How does that happen that they turn and we don't see it? How did Anakin turn into Darth Vader? Who would have known? We didn't expect that. But Ephesus was mature enough to detect the false teachers and to root them out. To say, we know, we know what you're teaching. And we know enough to know that you are false. Get out. Not only were they mature in that way, But I love this verse 3, what it says about him. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. That's a huge little phrase there. They were serving the Lord, not for what they could get out of it. They were serving the Lord for the glory of Christ. They were doing these things for his name's sake. And they weren't growing weary doing it. They had God's fame and God's name, and God's kingdom in view. They had the right perspective. When you read this, 
the church at Ephesus looks like they're in good shape. If you could say all those things about us, I would be happy. I would be happy. I would say we're a strong church if you could say those things about us. And I think I can go through there and say a lot of those things about us. Yet, with all of that, with all of that maturity, with all of that discernment, with all of that wisdom, Jesus gives them a serious warning that he's going to come and destroy their church if they don't clean up one thing. Verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the deed you did at first. Or I'm coming to you and I'm going to remove your church. You have one sin that I'm concerned about, Jesus says. I'm not going to send an angel to remedy the sin. I'm not going to send a bishop. I'm not going to send a church growth consultant for your problem. Jesus says, I am coming to you. And I'm going to take away your church. What does that mean? I don't know. Does that mean they cease to exist in some way? Yeah. Does that mean they go totally dead and liberal? Maybe. But as his church, they will cease to exist because of this one thing. All those other qualities weren't enough. Oh, you can persevere and you can be faithful, but if you left your first love, it's not enough. You can detect false teachings, you can know a doctrine, and you can know the truth, but if you left your first love, it's not enough. You can toil for the work of the Lord in his name, but if you left your first love, it's not enough. Continuing all those things without your first love just brings destruction. So let's talk about their sin. What is it that they left their first love that Jesus is so seriously concerned about? I think one way to see the seriousness of this is compare it to what the other churches were doing. And you'll see that Ephesus was in the worst shape of all these churches. Some of you are saying, wait, wait, wait. I know there's a couple really, really bad churches in there. Yeah, there are. But Ephesus was in worse shape. And let me show you. The message to Smyrna in verses 8 to 11, no threats, no criticisms, You guys are doing great. Just keep going. That was it. The message to Pergamum, starting in verse 12. He's got a warning in there in verses 14 and 15. I have a few things against you. There were some people holding to what they called the teachings of Balaam and some who were holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And what he says is, I'm going to come and I'm going to make war against just those people. Not your whole church. I'm just going to take care of those people who are departing from the truth. And they'll have to deal with me, Jesus says. But he's not going to take away the church. They'll be intact. The message to Thyatira, starting in verse 18. There is some teaching there and some following for a cult uh, named after Jezebel. And so he talks about, this is what I have against you in verse 20. You're tolerating the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So that's the problem there in that church. But he says later on in verse 24, I'm going to come, see the rest of you aren't following the teaching of Jezebel, and I'm going to come and deal with those people who are following Jezebel, but I'm not going to take away your church. 
because I know there's the rest of you there who are not holding to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. I place no other burden on you. So there's part of that church, but the whole church isn't going to be dismantled. In Sardis, starting in chapter 3, this church gets zero praise, no praise for what they're doing. In fact, Jesus calls them the dead church. You think you're alive? I call you dead, Jesus says. And he says, I'm going to come to you and take care of this problem. In Philadelphia, starting in verse 7, they get all praise. You've been faithful. Good job. Keep going. You have a good future. In Laodicea, all he says is bad things about Laodicea. They are in trouble. But look at verse 19. This is how he ends it with them. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now I'm thinking, wait a minute. Laodicea, if you are so bad that Jesus said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, you should dismantle that church too. And I would think, wait a minute. Sardis, if Jesus calls you the dead church, you should get dismantled too. But he doesn't say that about them. He only says that about Ephesus. You're the one I'm going to dismantle. You're the one... I'm going to get rid of because you left your first love. It would seem to me that the sins of those other churches are bigger than that. But not to Jesus. Are you telling me that churches that have these cultish teachings infiltrating them are not as bad as leaving your first love? Yep. That's what Jesus says. It's not as bad. Ephesians, church at Ephesus, was doing a lot right. But they offended Christ most seriously by leaving their first love. So what is it to leave our first love? What is that? We know this. Here's here's a great insight for you. That they left it. And what does that mean? The fact that they left it means they had it. And so Jesus is asking them to go back to something you actually did have at one time. This isn't something you have to reach for a guess at. I wonder what it's like. Will somebody inform me what it's like? All of you know what it's like because you had it at one time and you left. And so he tells them, verse 5, remember from where you have fallen. So we've got to take time and think back. Okay. What did I used to do? What did I used to be like? What did I used to think like? What used to be the passion of my heart in those early days that I don't have now? What was that? This love that he's talking about came earlier in time. The first love that you had for Jesus, he expects you to have today. The first zealous deeds that you did when you became a Christian, he expects you to do today. It's not a luxury. Because I think if we all just sat down and talked, we were honest, we would all struggle with this, yeah, I wish I had that first zeal and that first love again. And we look at it like, eh, so many of us kind of just progress on beyond that. and We just kind of lose that. That's just kind of the norm of Christians, isn't it? 
But Jesus is saying, no, I want you to go back. I'm commanding you, go back, repent. I want you to recapture that again. So what is it? That first love, you say, well, maybe some of you are thinking right now about some of the things you did when you were first saved. So the answer to that is a lot of different things. And if I had ten of you stand up, we'd get like seven or eight different kinds of answers. And it would all be right because of the way we grow and the way we do that. So I want you to think back to when you were first saved. About the things that you did at first. Now, I'm not calling you back to all of those things that you did at first. Because some of them, we kind of did in an uninformed way. And since I have the pulpit, I get to confess mine. If you want to stand up and confess yours, you can. But my first things were, I fed myself on Oral Roberts' writings. In fact, I read Oral Roberts' books for devotions. I didn't even own a Bible the first six months I was saved. All I read was the Daily Guide to Miracles, trying to figure out how I get my miracle for that day. Now, that's one thing we don't want to go back to. Okay, so we start separating. I had the little vial of oil that he sent me that I could anoint myself for, I'm not sure what, problems that I have, things that I want to happen, miracles that I want to happen. And so I would take it and I'd anoint myself on the forehead and nothing would ever happen. But I tried it. So there are some very uninformed things that happen when we're first saved. When I got saved, I figured I probably should go to a church. Never been to a church, but five times in my life as a little kid. So I found another guy who said he'd go to church with me. I said, where do you want to go? He goes, uh, I don't know, uh, I'll ask my mom and dad. So he came back the next day. He said, Mom, Dad said I could go to the United Methodist Church in Belvedere. I said, let's go. So we joined. I didn't know that it's a Bible-less church. How would I know that? I wasn't trained at all. So there's some things that we do when we're first saved that are just uninformed, maybe innocent, but we don't want to go back to. But there are some other things that we want to recapture. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, when they were Corinthians were struggling with Paul's authority and his apostleship, Paul was laying out his heart to them, saying, Receive us, Corinthians. We love you. And they were kind of holding back a little bit. He said to them, I am, I am afraid that your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I love that phrase. Simplicity and purity. It's not complicated. When we started out, it's very simple and very pure. And we have to retain we have to retain that. There's something very refreshing about simple and pure devotion. Just like that guy we read about from Bangladesh, you know, Sharkar. He can't read, but he's bringing people to Christ. Is that refreshing? Yes. Is he as advanced as us? No. More simple and pure? Maybe. Maybe. Many of you have heard of, uh, of Rachel Scott, one of the girls who was killed in the Columbine school massacre. And her dad was here three years ago at the Patriotic Prayer Breakfast and gave testimony. 
read excerpts from her diary. She was a, a very zealous Christian in her school. When we got done hearing her dad speak, I said, you know, I was 43 years old. I said, that 16-year-old kid is more devoted than I am at 43. And she was. And so when I thought about the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, I thought about her. She would write notes and letters to people. And on one, and kids, this is in your notes, and on one, she said, I'm not going to live like the world. I'm not going to follow the path of what the other people in my school are following. I am going to be a God-loving, Satan-slamming, Jesus-freaking, world-changing Christian. I love that language. It's simple, but it's pure. We don't use it anymore. We've gone beyond saying, I'm a Satan-slamming Christian. We've gone beyond saying, I'm a world-changing Christian. We've gone beyond saying, I'm a Jesus-freaking Christian. But maybe we need to go back a little bit. Maybe that language and that desire is something we need to hold on to. Because that girl was on fire. And so I want to call us back to simplicity and purity. It's not that hard. Nothing complicated is going to come out of my mouth on this. I'm not enough complex enough person to be able to pass that on to you. Consider it simple message from a simple person to hopefully simplifying people. So what's the key to returning to that first love for Christ? There are so many things, and I'm only going to deal with one. And you know what they are for yourself better than I know what they are. But I'm going to mention one. I think one of the major keys to returning to your first love to Christ is realizing that God is no longer our chief desire and confessing that. He's no longer our chief. We're no longer consumed with him. Our pursuit of God has just gotten pedestrian. We used to run after him. Now we just kind of walk slowly after him and gradually. Used to be we couldn't wait to be with him. Now it's when I have time. I know this to be true. You say, well, what, what does that language of first love look like? I want you to turn to Psalm 63. This is the language of first love. You say, I mean, how do I express that to God? I mean, what are you telling me about God that, that I should be saying to him? That I, how should my soul be running after him? Well, here's the language you can use. Psalm 63, starting in verse 1. O God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. When's the last time you said you thirsted for God? And that you just didn't seek him, but you sought him earnestly with energy and with power. Verse 2, I've beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. Look at that priority. You could live or you could have the loving kindness of God. Which are you going to choose? Most people would choose, well, I want to live. I don't want to die. No, I'll take the loving kindness of God. Kill me if you want. 
Just give me the loving kindness of God. It's better than living. Who says that? Verse 4. I'll bless you as long as I live. I'll lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. My soul is satisfied. I don't know about you, but how many things do you think of that you need in life to make you happy? I've got a list. The list should only be one word long. God. You can be satisfied with God. And you can be satisfied. You wouldn't need anything else. My list is way too long. Verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Well, I don't know. When I wake up at night, I turn on the radio to try to help me get back to sleep. I don't meditate on God that much. You've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. That language is what appeals to our first love. It's not my soul believes in you. It's not my soul follows you. It's not my soul shows up for church. My soul clings. That's a picture of nobody's giving up. You're not getting me away. I'm clinging. You see little kids do it. When they get shy, you go up and say hi to them. They cling to mom or dad. They're not letting go. That's us. Cling. God wants us to cling. Don't be afraid to cling. That's the language of first love. Now let me ask you this. Does that describe you more now or then? You know the answer. Those of you who are saying now, God bless you, keep going. Those of you who are saying then, which is what I would say, we need to repent and go back. The question is, where are your affections? Paul addressed the Corinthians this way as he continued to appeal to them to open up their hearts. He says, our heart is open to you. And then he said to them, Corinthians, you're not restrained by us. You are restrained in your own affections. They can control their own affections. Their own affections. They can control them. You can control your own affections. So where are they? Where are they? What are you attracted to? What do you love? What do you hate? It's your choice. If there's not much desire for God, that's because we let our affections cool. We did it. We did it. Nobody did it to us. We chose that. If we say, man, I'm just not as zealous as I used to be. We chose not to be zealous. We chose to set our affections on something else. Now, if I would ask you, and if you would ask me, is God your chief desire? I know what the answer is supposed to be. So I'd say yes. And you would say yes. So let me ask it another way. Is God your chief desire like he used to be? Maybe that's a different answer. I want to read you a letter that um, 
Rachel Scott wrote. I love this letter. I remember her dad reading it at that prayer breakfast. And I'd always remembered it since then. She was just writing to a friend. Uh, April 20th, 1998. Uh, Dear Sam is his name. I can't read her writing like I used to. Be. <laughs> uh, it's, like, it's like I have a heavy heart and this burden upon my back, but I don't know what it is. There's something in me that makes me want to cry, and I don't even know what it is. Things have definitely changed. Last week was so hard. Besides missing youth group, I lost all my friends at school. Now that I have begun to walk my talk, they make fun of me. I don't even know what I've done. I don't really have to say anything, and they turn me away. Some of you maybe remember that if you were saved in school, losing friends. I have no more personal friends at school, but you know what? It's all worth it to me. I'm not going to apologize for speaking in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to justify my faith to them, and I'm not going to hide the light that God has put into me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. I will take it. If my friends have to become my enemies for me to be my to, for me to be with my best friend Jesus, then that's fine with me. You know, I always knew that part of being a Christian is having enemies, but I never thought that my friends were going to be those enemies. It's all good though. I'm just a loner now at school, but I wish that someone from youth group went to my school to help. Always in Christ, Rachel Joy. You got to love that zeal, that I don't care what anybody says kind of love for Christ. As long as I have Christ, everybody else can go away. There's a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, heeding the words of Jesus in Revelation 2, maintaining her first love. Psalm 73, you know, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. The desire to go back is not the desire to be a zealous Christian. The desire to go back is the desire for the person of God himself. The desire is not for the church, so the church will benefit. The desire is not for a ministry, though that you may do. The desire is not for a list of convictions, to be known as a person with convictions. The desire is for the person of God, and nothing compares to it. I don't know how many times I have said, especially when going out to speak for Voice of the Martyrs, I have a passion for the persecuted church. I don't know how many times I haven't said, I have a passion for God. There's a difference. There's a ministry, there's a person. And we miss that. And let me tell you, One of the ways we miss it, and I can remember this, the more we study the scriptures, the more we tend to treat the Bible as as an end in itself. My Bible knowledge is a lot more than when I first got saved. And the more I got Bible knowledge, the more I wanted to know. And then it became Bible knowledge for Bible knowledge. And it became how much you knew. And it stopped being reading this to direct me right to the person of God. It's a big difference. How many times do you read the Bible 
just to know something. These are God's words to us. The goal is not to know the Bible. The goal is to know the Bible, to know God. And so God has to become our desire. So in closing, how do we do those first deeds? Well, first of all, I don't know what your first deeds were, so I can't tell you all of that. But you know what your first deeds were. So you get to go back and do that. But I have a couple things I want you to think about. One of the ways that really helps you do your deeds that you did at first is to be grateful, to be redeemed from your old life. How often do you think about your old life? How often do you think about what it was like to be without Christ? Or if you're still young and you were saved at a young age, you need to think about what a mess your life would have been if you hadn't been saved. Because I think about that. I was saved at 17. My life was not a dramatic mess, but it would have been eventually. It would have been. It was bad enough as it was. We need to think about our own life. We need that fresh view of grace again. And so Jesus commands in Revelation, you know, what's the remedy? Jesus, how do you want us to do this? His remedy is remember. One word, remember. That means you've got to take time to think about it. Oh, yeah, what did I used to do? What did it used to be like? What did I used to be like? Remember the night when it happened. Remember the day when you were saved. I can remember the feeling. I can remember the feeling when I was saved in my bedroom and coming out to the living room and sitting with my family there and just saying, I'm different than them. I didn't know how to explain that. That's probably as eloquent as I could be at the time. I know I'm different than them. I remember that feeling. And I've forgotten that feeling. That there was a big change. Well, you know, when God had the letter of Ephesians written to this church that we're talking about, he was constantly calling them to remember what they used to be like. In chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Remember, Ephesians, among them, you formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of your mind. You were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of those people you hung out with. Remember that, Ephesians? Remember that? But now, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your transgressions, made us alive together. That'll fan the flames of first love. Remember when you were a hell-deserving sinner and God set you free? He continues on in chapter 2. Remember that formerly you, just like the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, remember that you were separate from Christ. But now, 
You who are formerly far off were brought near to the blood of Christ. Keeps reminding them what they were. Chapter 5, verse 8. You were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He's changing their perspective. And so I can see this even when it gets to the time in Revelation, when the church of Ephesus gets this new letter, he's calling them to do the same thing. Remember what you were? You used to be darkness. Now you're light. You used to be bound by sin. Now you're free. You used to have no hope. Now you're full of hope. Go back to that. Remember? And the last thing I would tell you is not only be grateful to be redeemed from your old life, but go back and remember the first promises you made to Jesus. Those promises, I would guess, are pretty intense. They were pretty intense, weren't they? Here's a common one. Once you understand that God had loved you and saved you out of your sins, and that he doesn't do that for everybody, in fact, he doesn't do that for most people, but he did it for you, common response is, Lord, I'll do Anything for you. Anything. When's the last time you prayed that? I don't know. When's the last time I prayed that? Anything includes anything. Name it. But now we get to the point where we say, well, I'll do these things. Because I'm comfortable with these things. I'm good at these things. If you ask me to cross that line over there, I'm uncomfortable with doing these other things. Or I might look too simple doing these other things. Come on, I've matured in the faith. I'm not going to go around saying I'm a Satan-slamming-Jesus-freaking-Christian. We can say it around me. I'll accept that. I like that language. But our promises used to be really intense. There's a poem written by Amy Carmichael. A lot of you probably have heard this part of the phrase. I just want to read a certain phrase in, in the poem. Amy Carmichael, missionary to India for many decades. She talks about, she says, Give me the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me your fuel flame of God. And it's really interesting when I was reading through this book that even Rachel picked up on that and ended one of her letters in her struggle. Why do I lose focus of you during praise and worship and prayer? Why can't I completely be consumed by you? So my encouragement to you is go back and make those promises again. That's kind of scary because those are disciple promises. And go back and do those first things that you did. Now, it's not going to be polished, but it'll be pure. What were they? Long prayer times? Was that it? Do that again. What was it? Meditation on the Word? Not reading just to get Bible knowledge. Was it meditation on the Word? 
Do that again. Was it certain music that you really liked, that really blessed you, that drew you close to God? Do that again. Are there certain books that really fanned the flame? Read that again. This is one of mine. True Discipleship. It's out of print. Peggy had to find it on the used book site and order it through the Internet. I have this often, but I keep giving it away. And I have to keep finding it again. Because I'll find somebody who's showing the spark of zeal. And I'll say, you need this. There's nothing in this book that you don't know. You know it all. I guarantee you, you know it all. I could turn to any page in here and read it, and you would say, yeah, I've heard that before. But this guy says, what are you doing? What are you doing? I've heard it all before, too. This guy brings it home and makes you deal with it. And so this is one of mine. Is there a book that you need to go back to? Is there a certain ministry you need to do? Is it something simple? Is it going and visiting a shut-in? Nobody knows you're going to do it except Jesus. Is it fellowship with other Christians without categorizing them? you got to understand how I'm going to say this. George Whitfield's principle, the great evangelist's principle, in fellowshipping with others was, I love all those who love my Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good platform to go on. I love all those who love my Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we can remember doing that when we're early Christians. But then we know how to draw lines. And there are these kind of Christians and these kind of denominations and these kind of Christians. And we categorize. And we lose fellowship by doing that. For some of us, it's breaking down that wall and fellowshipping with true believers who are not exactly like us. Well, according to Jesus, there's just something very special about those first deeds. Something that he treasures. Something that he wants you to keep doing. You don't have to be gifted. You don't have to be talented. You don't have to be knowledgeable. All you need to do is be zealous. So everyone, all of us are included in that. You don't have to figure out your gift. As you personally recapture that first love, you know what it's going to do? It's going to kindle the rest of the church here. And this church right here will not leave its first love. But all of us have to do it individually to make sure that we don't leave our first love. Take the warning seriously. And take the invitation seriously. It's possible to go back. Let's pray. Lord, you know the burning love that we have shown to you in past times that sometimes we have lost. And we miss it. And we know that you miss it. Will you help us get that back? Help us to repent. Be gracious to us and lead us to repentance. Convict us, but also encourage us to know that we can go back to that first love, that we can love you in a way that will glorify you. We can love you in a way that will help preserve our church.
and preserve our souls. Lord, help us to be able to experience what the psalmist knows. That you are the one that we have in heaven, and besides you we desire nothing on earth. Some of us cry, what does that mean? How does that feel? And we don't know exactly. But we're asking you to reveal that to us. And take each one of us. And bring us back to that first love if we've departed. And then, Lord, you'll have a church full of people who will say, Lord, we're willing to do anything for you. And I pray you would use us for your name's sake to spread your glory through this city, through this state, through other countries. Amen.